Coming up next, the book ending reads, That Hideous Strength. Bookening. My name is Nathan Alverson. I am your humble and obedient host, and I'm so excited today to join you once again to read a great book by a great author? Question mark? Hey, he's pretty great. I don't know. We'll see how we feel. He's good. I like him. You guys like him? Yes. Yes. The mysterious voice of someone who's here says yes, and so does Brandon. I also say yes. And so does Jake. Let's meet our panel today, folks. We have, we'll, we'll go uh, clockwise today mix it up a little bit although i think clockwise is fairly normal fairly normal so we'll end with a mysterious guest we're ending with a mysterious guest yes um so there's more mystery right our unmysterious regular contributor is completely boring completely boring brandon boring boring brandon boring brandon brandon Brandon. Brandon. (laughs) alliterate (laughs) which c.s lewis would be very happy with he would be (laughs) he's not as alliterative as old uh gk no not quite chesterton but we're here with brandon he's the phd abd how you doing today brandon Doing great, Nathan. You ready to talk about this book? Very excited to talk about this book. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) We are also joined by... I don't even want to say. I don't know why I wouldn't want to say. It goes without saying. It goes without saying. He's the pastor who's a master of reading. You know him. You love him. If you don't love him, you're wrong. If you do love him, you're right. There is absolute truth in this world. (laughs) One of the absolute truths that I subscribe to is that this gentleman is fantastic. His name is Pastor Jacob Menzel. Jake. Nathan. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Do you agree with my assessment of yourself? (laughs) Yeah, of course. I'm glad. Uh, you excited to read this uh, book? Yeah, I'm very excited to read it. <laughs> I'm going to read it someday. <laughs> now, you have already heard, dear listener, and you are very dear to me. You already heard his voice, and you've been wondering, who is this person? I've listened to every book in them. I've listened to them multiple times because I love the show that much. And I've given a great review on iTunes, and I just think it's fantastic. But who is that voice, that extra voice? Who, who could be here for this podcast? You're probably wondering. Brandon, thoughts? I have no clue. I think it's a good one, though. Do you think it's a good... Yeah. Are we playing like 20 questions? We record this episode, every episode of the bookening in like separate rooms. Yeah. We can't actually see. I think we should try to guess who that mysterious voice is. All right. Mm. Let's hear something from the mysterious voice. Mysterious voice, if you were going to take someone on a date, not me, a woman, where would you take her? Uh, To a good restaurant, no doubt. To a good restaurant, no Mm, doubt. No doubt. Our mysterious guest has absolutely zero (laughs) doubts. Zero doubts. The uh, the said uh, date companion is sitting right over there nodding her head. Date companion? Mm-hmm. Would he take you to a good restaurant? Ding, ding, su- ding. <laughs> is, is that because you or he has a special affinity for food? Yeah. For good food? They oh, both yeah. have an affinity. The only people that... What kind like of... So you said a good restaurant. What branded. defines a good restaurant? And I obviously have a good A restaurant with good food? <laughs> Not necessarily good food. <laughs> right. The last restaurant we went to was a Greek restaurant. Ooh. Ooh. The best restaurant that we go to is when someone else is picking up the tab. <laughs> <laughs> Which was the case with this restaurant. (laughs) Our mysterious guest is here, and he will be mysterious no longer because I'm about to tell you his name. His name is Pastor Stephen Baker. Hey. Yes. Stephen, you are a man. I hope so. I've been told we need to get a woman on this podcast multiple times, but that's not what we're doing. Um, you shouldn't say that on the air. I don't like that. Um, We've been told wrong. Only if she gives a really good, uh, inter, uh, what's it called, uh, rating. Rating. Uh, oh, on iTunes. Review. Well, I'll, I'll, try to, I'll try to an iTunes review for a favor, sure. Uh, <laughs> Stephen Baker is the, ma- is the man that is here. He's going to talk about this book, which I understand is a personal favorite of his. Pa- Stephen is pastor of Clear Note Church, one of the associate pastors. He's also dean of Clear Note Pastors College. If you feel like you're hearing wisdom come into your earbuds today, then and you want to be a pastor, and you're a man, then only, only, you should probably come to uh, Clarenau Pastors College. Stephen, how are you today? I'm fine. I'm glad. Great to be here. Thank you. All right, guys, let's discuss That Hideous Strength. All right, let's do it. I'm going to talk about some That Hideous Strength, the book that time called Well Written. 
Ah. <laughs> According to the back of this Collier books, you know who did uh, did review this book was George Orwell, and he was he was quite a fan of it. He said it was dumb that it got all bugged down in religion and stuff at the end, but yeah. he liked the stuff about the loveless marriage. I guess I don't know. He would know. Yeah. <laughs> Zing in your face, Orwell. I have no idea, actually. Probably, folks. It's time for us to begin our discussion, and we're going to do something a little bit different today, Brandon. Usually, this is about the time when I would ask you to pull out the old. Texas pistols, fire them off in the air, and give us some much-needed context about this literary work, the contextual Texan, as I like to call it, if someone's just listening to this for the first time, because you're from Texas, and you provide context. And, but you're not going to do that this time, are you? I'm not. I have holstered my guns. You have holstered your guns? Yep. So I need you to unholster them and hand them over to one... All right, here we go. Mr. Pastor Stephen Baker. Throw them across the table here. All right, Stephen, you are going to provide us with some context about this book, which I understand is quite a favorite of yours. Is that correct? It is a favorite of mine. It is a favorite of yours. And we'll get more into our own personal context a little bit later on and why it's your favorite and all that sort of thing. We'll have plenty of time to talk about that. But you are going to tell us about this book. So take it away, sir. The floor is yours. Okay. Well, everyone knows something about C.S. Lewis, right? I think everyone listening to this knows something about C.S. Lewis. I would suspect that that is true. Venture. We've heard of him. We've we've seen the movie, right? Shadowlands. (laughs) I've seen the movie. Oh, that's right. So with Anthony Hopkins. mm -hmm. Yeah, good movie. Born in 1898, dies in 1963. Is most famous for his children's books that everyone knows about, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia books, but also for things like uh, the Screw Tape Letters. Mere Christianity, Surprised by Joy, that kind of stuff. Those would be probably the most popular books. Um, He is most often called a Christian apologist, and he really is either loved or hated. Not many people have kind of a neutral feeling about Lewis. And J.I. Packer, some of our listeners know Packer was a um, Reformed theologian, professor, author. He called him the patron saint of evangelicals. And the problem with that is that Lewis was not an evangelical, and evangelicals don't have patron saints. <laughs> that would be a problem. Yeah. Uh, Packer called Lewis the Aquinas, the Augustine, and the Aesop of contemporary evangelicalism. Wow. Wow. The Aquinas, the Augustine, and the Aesop. And the Aesop. It covers all the bases there. <laughs> I guess so. What else could he possibly be? Which means that contemporary evangelicals are remarkably stupid. <laughs> You know no who doubt. I think that the uh, Augustine of modern evangelicalism is? Augustine! Boom! <laughs> <laughs> we can only hope. <laughs> I mean, now, could try, yeah. So why do people love him? What, what would you guys say? Why would, do people love C.S. Lewis? Yeah. I know why. I loved him when I was a kid, when I was but a young lad. I loved him because he wrote in a very simple, approachable style. And even something like Mere Christianity, which was, when I first read it, maybe a little bit out of my grasp even, uh, was just something that was fun to read and felt light and not heavy, felt, had some humor to it, had some wit, was very clear in the way that it expressed things. And yeah, I can only speak for myself, but that's my mm-hmm. feeling. That was going to be my answer. His simple, clear, straightforward prose. He's engaging, mm-hmm. interesting. He seems like somebody you'd want to sit around a fire with and have a yep. conversation. Smoke Intelligent. Pipe. Yep. Mm. Yeah, I loved as a kid. I loved Nar- the world of Narnia. Yep. I fell in love with the world of Narnia, and I wasn't a wasn't a Christian thing. It was just the thing. And good story. Yeah, a good yeah. story and imaginative imaginative world that I got sucked into yeah. as a child. And well, the other thing, the other reason people like him is, of course, he's British. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and that helps. That's right. Doesn't hurt. Now, why do people hate him? Here's here's why people hate him. And people really do hate him, right? They're, I mean, people love him or hate him. And the, the reason people hate him is because he has really serious theological problems. So on the one hand, he believes in miracles. He believes in the Trinity. He believes in kind of supernatural, you know, he believes in redemption, he believes in sin. But on the other hand, he's remarkably weak and muddled on all kinds of things like the doctrine of scripture. Really awful. I mean, he calls uh, the imprecatory. Psalms. I think this is a quote from the Reflections on the Psalms. He calls them uh, the ravings of a madman. Mm-hmm. Right now, this is the word of God, but he says so. He has, he just has a terrible view of Scripture that comes out in many places. Right? Yeah, I remember as a kid even being queasy about the guy from Tash. Yeah, that exactly. Goes to heaven. Or yep. Whatever the and the, and he says this over and over. He doesn't just say it in his fiction. He says it when he really means to say it, and he says it in that hideous strength. Actually, mm-hmm. if you, I don't know if you caught that. He says if yeah, you are basically the point is if you're praying to a any god sincerely, then the true God, Jesus, will accept that prayer and take that and take you. Right. He's an Anglican. He grew up in Northern Ireland. So he grew up a Protestant in Northern Ireland. So he never became a Roman Catholic, but he's basically Anglo-Catholic. 
So he, he essentially believes most of the doctrines of uh, Roman Catholicism, believes in baptismal regeneration, believes in transubstantiation, I believe. Uh, so, you know, he's more of a more like a Roman Catholic than a Presbyterian, right? Mm-hmm. And so people who care about that kind of thing get uptight about that and think everything he says must be terrible and we shouldn't listen to him. But I don't think that's right. I don't think we should either venerate him or hate him. I think we should understand him. Uh, and then, you know, chew it up, spit out the bones. There are bones to spit out, but there are always bones to spit out. And so here are the things we need to understand about Lewis. Uh, first, he was not a theologian. And so when he's writing like a theologian, he says stupid stuff. Mm-hmm. When he's writing like what he is, he's a medievalist, he's a novelist, he's a literary critic. When he's writing like that, he's great. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he's not a theologian. Uh, But he is a Christian, and so he writes as a Christian, but not as a theologian. And so he says things that are fuzzy, things that are stupid, things that are wrong. But he never claimed to be a theologian. He was an academic atheist who was converted to Christianity, and that's why he was thrust into the public eye because of who he was before he was converted. Mm. And he was brilliant, and he was a good writer and a good speaker. I mean, the Mere Christianity was um, originally radio radio broadcast during the war, during World War II, I I think. Mm -hmm. I believe so, yeah. And that was all, you know, put into a book. But it was kind of, you know, here's a a reasonable man, you know, he's a, I I can't remember where he he was at Oxford or Cambridge at the time, but he's a reasonable man. He's going to give comfort to the nation. You know, that was kind of the point of the Mere Christianity broadcast. And so he was thrust into the public eye because of who he had been and who he was after he was converted, for better or for worse. So that's, that's him. Now, second, we need to understand his time and his place in history. And this is really, really important. American evangelical Christians are really pretty stupid when it comes to history, right? Except, you know, maybe present company accepted. I don't know. Of course. Okay. And so what American evangelical Christians do with history, with anyone historical, anyone who's not now, we act as if everything has always been as it is now. And so we refuse to understand people as they were in their own time. We judge them as if they were living today. And we do this with the early church. We do it with the Middle Ages. We do it with the Reformation. So we look back on, you know, these guys back in those days and we say, oh, how, you know, how terrible they were. You know, that John Calvin would have agreed to have, uh, what's his name's head, or no, he, he got burned. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But, but we look at that whole world and we just think these are barbarians. No, they weren't. They were just people living in their time. And that exactly the same thing is true of Lewis. Lewis was a man living in his time. He wasn't a modern American evangelical. And so we can't judge him by the standards that we would judge a modern American evangelical. And so here's the thing. Lewis lived in Britain in the beginning of the 20th century, right? And what was the church like in Britain at the beginning of the 20th century? It was a wreck. It was, it was completely rotten. It was in shambles. It had been destroyed by the liberal theology that had come in from Europe for the last 50, 70 years. It was just, it was awful. And so, of course, there were some evangelicals around in, in Britain at the time. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones is a pastor, is a good faithful evangelical pastor uh, in London, almost exactly the same age. He's a year younger than Lewis. He's, he's born in 1899. Um, so Martin Lloyd-Jones is an is a evangelical, and we think, you know, Martin Lloyd-Jones was great, and so there must have been lots and lots and lots and lots of great evangelicals at the time. There weren't. They were very rare, and they were hated. They were laughed at. They were despised. Much, much more even than today, I would say, because of their numbers. And so Lewis didn't probably didn't have any evangelical friends. He probably didn't have any evidence. He may not have known. He probably had some acquaintances, but he would not have had friends who were evangelicals. That wasn't his world. And it's hard for us today to understand just how completely godless Britain was, how utterly godless all of Europe was. Think of World War I. Uh, Nations that were supposedly Christian slaughtered each other, slaughtered each other. And they, they they didn't think they were putting off their Christianity when they did it. Now, what kind of Christianity was it? Well, you can read a lot about the effect of World War I on Christianity in Europe, the Christianity that came after World War I, but it's also important to understand how a secularized, liberal Christianity led Europe to World War I in the first place. That's what got them there. This is the world that Lewis grows up in. Lewis fights in World War I. You know, he gets wounded, comes back. Uh, that was his world. That's the world he grew up in. That's it's the world he was trained in as an academic. And so for him, just just to wrap your, our minds around this, for him simply to profess any kind of traditional semi-conservative Christian faith would have been a bombshell in his world. And so, in other words, here's my point: cut him some slack. We need to cut him some slack. He was wrong, but put us in his shoes. I I believe we probably would have made all the same mistakes that he made, especially Brandon. 
That goes without saying. Being the academic. (laughs) (laughs) So don't venerate him, but don't hate him either. Just understand him. So that's, that's, that's Lewis, right? Now then, we can talk about the Space Trilogy. Do you want to say anything else about Lewis? No. All right. Well, let's talk about the Space Trilogy. Really, this is a misnomer. Lewis called it the Ransom Trilogy. That's his preferred title, which I will use because my grandson is named Ransom. Yes. So Lewis wrote the first book, Out of the Silent Planet, 1938, then Pearland in 1943, then finally That Hideous Strength, 1945. And it's crazy to think of that because so much of what he says sounds so um, perfectly uh, today, contemporary, right? The issues he's dealing with are really, um, he, he saw what was coming. But he wrote the first book in 1938. Now, remember, Lewis was a professor of Renaissance and medieval literature, and the Ransom Trilogy really is a modern retelling of medieval cosmology. And it doesn't make sense, apart from understanding the picture of the world, the picture of the cosmos that the medieval people had, rattling around in their heads. The cosmos of the Ransom Trilogy is the cosmos of the medieval mind. It's the, it's the cosmos of Dante and Chaucer. It, was a, it would be the cosmos that, you know, King Arthur and Merlin would have had, right? I mean, that's the, the, their view of the structure, literally, of the universe was coming from a very different place than what we have today. You can read all about that vision, that understanding of the way the world was built, literally the way the cosmos is built, in Lewis's book called The Discarded Image. It's one of his kind of academic medieval renaissance. It's the, it's kind of, I can't remember, the subtitle is like the uh, the cosmology of the medieval and renaissance world or something. I can't remember what it is, but it's, yeah. It, so he's talking about the way that they would actually have thought about the structure of the world. Everything from the planets to the spheres that the planets revolve in to the beings that inhabit the, you know, the, uh, the heavens, all of that, everything that you read about, all the background of the uh, space trilogy, the Ransom Trilogy books, is a medieval cosmology. And the planets in the space trilogy all have beings. They have gods or, or angels that are attached to them. And that obviously plays in hugely to the whole uh, plot of the Space Trilogy, the Ransom Trilogy. Sorry, I'm going to get that right. (laughs) And so the first two books of the Ransom Trilogy have Ransom traveling to Mars and Venus and meeting there all the creatures that live there, and especially the the angels, uh, the gods of those worlds, Mars and Venus. And then the third book has Mars and Venus traveling to Earth. That's where the whole thing turns is when they come down here. Now that brings us to the third book, That Hideous Strength. Lewis calls these books a modern fairy tale for grown-ups, and that's absolutely true. This isn't this is not kids reading. You know, I I, I can imagine having older high school kids read this book, but if they're going to deal with what it's talking about and understand it, it's some seriously adult. You know, as he says, grown-up themes in it. So he calls these modern fairy tale for grown-ups, and the story is fantastic, I and mean, it's a fairy tale, but it's really rooted in reality. And so the philosophies that Lewis personifies, all these, all these characters, all these guys and one woman uh, in the NICE, right, all these characters are really personifications of, of philosophies that were very real in Lewis's day, and even much more so today, I would say. So you've got this guy, Reverend Strake. He's like this mad parson guy. He really personifies the godless, secularized Christianity that led to World War I. It's all about power. It's all about the kingdom of God on this earth, brought about by force, brought about by armies. That's Strake. Professor Frost represents the natural or the reductionistic naturalism, where everything is uh, just chemical reactions in your brain. I mean, that's a philosophy that's completely overtaken the Western world today. Dr. Philostrato. He's really the ultimate expression of the survival of the fittest. The human race will evolve and evolve and evolve beyond the need for a body, right? Uh, Major Hardcastle, fairy, fairy Hardcastle, she is the feminist. She is feminism. She is the new woman that uh, G.K. Chesterton lampoons in his writings. I mean, she is the personification of that. The woman become a man. Lord Feverstone. He's simply the heartless, godless, greedy, materialistic, upper-class scoundrel that is uh, filling Europe after Christianity is gone, right? Uh, in Out of the Silent Planet, Weston, the bad guy, is essentially quoting George Bernard Shaw almost word for word. It's fascinating. Hmm. And in the screw tape letters, Lewis basically mentions Shaw by name, all right? Let me read this little quote from one of the screw tape letters. He says, uh, this is uh, screw tape. I'm assuming you guys who are listening know screw tape letters, right? He says this, a more modern writer, someone with a name like Pshaw, this is spelled P-S-H-A-W, someone with a name like Pshaw, which of course is Shaw, has, however, grasped the truth. This is a demon talking. He says, transformation proceeds from within 
and is a glorious manifestation of that life force which our father would worship, so Satan would worship, if he worshiped anything but himself. And that is Weston. That's that's the whole point of everything that comes out of the NICE. It's this life force. It's it's the worship of that life force that runs all through the NICE. And the, now, let me read one more passage, and then I'll be done. From the screw tape letters. This perfectly expresses what's going on underneath the surface that what what everyone's talking about and assuming in the NICE. Here's what he says. So again, this is screw tape the demon. He says, I have great hopes that we demons shall learn in due time how to emotionalize and mythologize their science to such an extent that what is in effect belief in us, though not un- under that name, so belief in demons, will creep in while the human mind remains closed to belief in the enemy, to belief in God. The life force, the worship of sex, and some aspects of psychoanalysis may here prove useful. If once we can produce our perfect work, the materialist magician, the materialist magician, the man, not using but veritably worshiping what he vaguely calls forces while denying the existence of spirits, then the end of the war will be in sight. That's the NICE. It's exactly what's going on. It's demons inspiring this materialist magician. And ultimately, they think that's going to be um, Merlin. Right. Um, the complete contrast to the materialist demonic magicians of the NICE are the residents of St. Anne's. And they are normal, humble, down-to-earth, uh, dirt-under-their-fingernails Christians. So that's, that's the context of the book. That's the whole context of what's going on. It was the real stuff that was happening at the time and the world that Lewis was living in. That's all I got to say about that. That's interesting. Uh, just as a point of interest, I'll add that uh, George Bernard Shaw would have been alive mm-hmm. through the publication of all three of those books. He lived a long time because he was trading witty barbs with G.K. Chesterton back in the day. They were rivals and friends, actually. They were, uh, they were I don't know if you'd call them friends, but they were great respecters of each other, mm-hmm. respectful enemies. And so uh, G.K. Chesterton and Bernard Shaw were always fighting about this or that, atheism, secularism, all the same stuff. And yeah, Shaw lived a long time. He, was, he died in 1950. And if you really don't know who he is, he wrote the thing that later be turned into My, My Fair Lady. So it's, yeah. it's that guy. Pygmalion. Pygmalion. Yep. He was a socialist. He, he, was, was, a, he was a rabbit. He was a Fabian socialist. So he socialist. was all about creeping in and destroying the West from uh, slowly and, and secretly from inside. Yeah. yeah. He was a bad dude. The existence of George Bernard Shaw gives me hope for civilization because people don't really remember him or respect him now unless they're dumb, you know, socialist professors locked away in some university maybe. Yeah. But and the and the rain in Spain falls mainly on the planet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody knows and loves My <laughs> Fair Lady yeah. after they changed the ending to make it more palatable and less weird and socialist. Um, people don't really remember Shaw. He was a big deal back in his day for his rebellion against God, basically for his witty atheism and socialism and all these kinds of things. And it's nice that his fame hasn't lasted. I wish that GK Chesterton's fame had lasted, but anyway, Brandon, you looked like you were going to say something. Were you going to say something? No, I was just looking for something. Didn't find it. You didn't find it. Didn't find it. So you're not going to say it. I'm not going to say it. (laughs) I forgot what I was going to say anyways. You have anything to add about Bernard Shaw or anything? (laughs) Uh, I can add another thing while you're thinking. C.S. Lewis, big science fiction fan, read all the science fiction in his day. Mm. This book was very much influenced, and all the books were by some pretty trashy sci-fi novels. Mm -hmm. Lewis loved, he loved even bad sci-fi. He didn't so much like what we think of now, the pulpy kind of pulp magazine, alien invaders type stuff, but he really liked any any cheap novel about space exploration or <laughs> fantasy worlds. He really liked yeah. that kind of stuff. And to, to the point where his <laughs> friends and other professors and Professor Tolkien would, would mock him a little bit, you know, why are you reading this garbage? And he would say, well, if it has a great idea in it, then <laughs> I don't care if it's well written. What I'm interested in is that fantastic new world, that yeah, beast, yeah. Uh, that imagination. Um, and well, supposedly it, they had a, a, a deal. Tolkien and Lewis had a deal. Lewis was supposed to write about a, a novel about space travel. And Tolkien was supposed to write about time travel, hmm. which he never did. He there is a he kind of sorted it. Yeah, the Dark Tower, yeah. wasn't it? Or? Now they've taken like everything that Tolkien wrote on a napkin and published it. Yeah. that Christopher Tolkien wants money. Oh, I hadn't heard but, that. Well, but, sure. But. Yeah. Here's some interesting context that I just read this past week, which is that 
at the turn of the 20th century and into the 20s and 30s, uh, it was widely held, scientifically held, that there was, in fact, intelligent life on Mars, that it had been discovered. I think I think what was proved to be an illusion, but a scientist, uh, I think from, from Paris or from France, noted uh, these perfectly straight lines. Right, the, ch- the canals. Mars. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. The, what he called channels, but what yeah. got translated as canals, right. which then took on a life of its own. And so, you know, you, you started getting like the New York Times publishing, scientists definitively proves the existence of intelligent life on Mars. And it's widely held. Everybody believes yeah. that there's well, actual intelligent life on Mars. And a lot of the, the context for H.G. Wells and Orson Wells, <laughs> right. c- Orson Wells. C- came out of... It was just accepted just fact. Just taken as a matter of fact. Yeah, and it was only a well, question Well, there are pyramids of... on Mars, though. Okay. Yeah, okay. There are pyramids on Mars? Well, sure. Oh, wow. Sphinx. Yeah, come on. What's but wrong I, with you people? I, um, <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. I assume that's a reference <laughs> just, that I have not gotten. It's just true. <laughs> the truth? Yeah. The truth is out what there. if we slowly reveal through this podcast that demons are crazy, like... <laughs> and also, the Holocaust <laughs> didn't happen. <laughs> Everybody knows that. Um, yeah, sci- sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was just going to, just sci-fi was a big deal back then. It was a lot of fun. I think sci-fi was more fun before we'd been to the moon, honestly. And it is important. Maybe this sounds like a really obvious thing to say, but we hadn't been to the moon then. I mean, just yeah. think about it. Oh, think yeah. about the different world and the, the places that your imagination yeah. could go, given the limited you information. Could, you could not had. know what was on the other side of the moon. Right. Yeah. Which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, a lot of mystery there. Brendan, I'm sorry. I interrupted you. You were about to say something so witty and wise. I just know it's going to... Maybe not witty. Okay. You're about to say something so wise. <laughs> we'll take wise. I don't know wise either. <laughs> You're about I, to I say was, something dumb. I was going to say something. What was I going to say? There are a lot of thoughts swimming around in my head right now. I'll start with a thought that I wish I had found my book on stories by Lewis. Hmm. Did one of you guys, did you have? I have a copy. I wish I'd brought it. It's a fantastic... Is that my copy? No. <laughs> I do have your copy of Jesus' Son, which I need oh, to get back to. which we'll you. read on the book in one year. Yeah, that'd be fun. Anyways, um, it's a fantastic book. It's where he talks a lot about his philosophy, philosophy of, of literature and story, where he mm-hmm. talks a lot about what you were saying. Where So there's a lot of philo- um, philosophy and ideas in this book, but also it emphasizes what he really took as being one of the greatest qualities of a story is just the beauty and the wonder and the yes. of mm-hmm. place yep. and the imagination. And just so I think it's in that on stories where he says that to really understand his theory of what a good story is, you have to be the type of person that just sits there and thinks about like mm-hmm. a river and then you follow the river and you think about the canyons and the forests and you create worlds in your head mm-hmm. and that's just the splendor and wonder of imagination and so you see that yeah. with various creations in this mr bultitude just mr merlin himself mm-hmm. coming out of this um creative energy that he really loved and is what he sought and loved and things like hg wells mm-hmm. so one of his favorite books was the man on the moon the first man on the moon yeah I think hmm. so. and he also loved uh, he loved hg wells a lot for this quality of his hmm. ability to present worlds to us mm-hmm. and, right. well what um, uh, sorry to interrupt again what he says in that essay that you're referencing he talks about speaking to one of his students at the college and talking about a, a, a boyhood story that they had both loved, maybe James Fenmore Cooper, I think. And there's a scene where uh, one of those uh, savages, as I like to call him, is, is sneaking up yeah, on a guy with a tomahawk. Engines. And, and he's, yeah, engines is going to kill the guy. And what Lewis said to the student was, yes, I had that narrative lust, that suspense that I felt over whether the guy was going to get killed. But it wouldn't have been half as interesting if it wasn't he was going to get killed by an Indian, if I didn't hear the the rustle of the leaves, if I wasn't, you know, part of the romance for me was the romance of place. That's why I love story. You know, he said, I never liked Alexander Dumas because all that happens in the Three Musketeers is they just go to a tavern, something happens, they go to another tavern, something happens, they go to a third tavern, something happens, there's dialogue. Hmm. There's no, uh, the place is not evoked. And his students said, I don't agree. Insofar as this place, the setting, the romance of the old frontier was evoked, it got in the way of what I enjoyed about the story, which was just pure narrative lust. Pure, is the guy going to die is, or is he not? This guy really liked Alexander Dumas because that's what Alexander Dumas is very good at. It's those clockwork plots. But Lewis, uh, without saying that his friend was wrong necessarily, just said for him, it was the romance of place. It was the romance of, yeah. of, of style. Uh, the other example he gives, I think, 
think in that same essay, or at least in that same collection of essays, I think it is from H.G. Wells' Man on the Moon book, That's right. where the guy is on the moon and he is he's going to die because his spaceship has left him behind and it's going to get cold and he's going to freeze. And Lewis talks about how if you were actually in that situation, your feelings about it would be very prosaic. They would be exactly the same as someone in a hospital bed who's about to die. They would just be the same old boring fear and loneliness of anyone who's going to die. But what a book allows us to do is to feel the romance and the wonder and the loneliness of being out in space trapped on the moon and hmm. the darkness closing in around you and the cold coming and the vast, the vastness and the, the sort of divine, you know, the, the guy just being a fly caught in i don't know i cannot can't evoke it because that's why i don't write sci-fi but um <laughs> lewis talked about how you know that's what a good story is yeah, the third example i'm sorry I, did, I really like this essay i thought it was it was very helpful to me he talks about seeing a movie of h h g h writers king solomon's minds which was a story he had really enjoyed growing up, which is about, you know, a jungle adventure story. And he talks about how in the movie they get trapped in the catacombs and then they do some cool Indiana Jones thing to escape or whatever. And Lewis really didn't like that because it made the suspense into, again, just that pure sort of narrative lust of are they going to die? Will the poison darts hit them? Whatever it was. What he remembered from the story was the terrible claustrophobic feeling of being stuck in this ancient catacomb with bugs crawling around and, you know, the ancient dead buried next to you. And he just said, you know, the filmmakers, and Lewis always had something negative to say about the cinema, but he just said the filmmakers yeah. completely destroyed the romance of right. what of what interested me about the story. And I think that does tie into that hideous strength because there is a lot of description. A lot of it's very evocative and well-styled. And um, Yeah, but here's the thing. When I read, if you're going to compare like Lewis and Tolkien. Mm -hmm. Tolkien's much better at it. Well, Tolkien's better at describing the place mm -hmm. and and the kind of immersing you in the, in the world. What I think Lewis is better at is getting you into people's heads. Mm -hmm. So he kind of is, is describing the world that's going on inside the, the, the thought. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the thing that I, one of the things I love the most about this book is you, you really get to feel and, and it's like, yeah, Mark, I can, I, I know what, I know what Mark is thinking because I've thought that same thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so he really describes the stuff that's going on in the internal world more than the out external world. If yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I yeah, think that's, that's true. That's one of his strong points. You even yeah. get the thoughts that are inside of a bear's head. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's, that's one of the yeah. things I love about it. It's a good description of one of his strengths. Yeah. I don't know that but, he was entirely successful in that, what I just described, but it was, but something that, that he you admired. can't downplay that because well, you like in surprised by joy. Mm -hmm. He talks about the same thing, this feeling of, it's like the ache of desire right. or something that mm -hmm. was awakened in yep. first when he was a child and he read Squirrel Nutkin. Mm -hmm. right. And it's this feeling of autumn, but not just autumn, it's something bigger than him. It's the transcendent. And right. that's actually, he ties that to what eventually awakened him to becoming right. saved. Because one thing you can't do with Lewis is just see him as a, like an academic. He was also, he was weird. He got into theosophy, which was a very strange... Yeah, well, spiritual kind yeah, of it was spiritualism. spiritualism. Mm -hmm. Ye w. B. Yeats was into it. A.W. Pink. Really? If, was he? if our listeners know who A.W. Pink was. That's he was a theophostic, as that would be the right word? Theos he was a theos theos theosophist, theosophist yeah. kind of medium. He really? was a medium. And he's living at exactly the same time as A.W. As C.S. Lewis. Yeah, and so this was That's a big, the world. That's yeah. what was going on. And so Lewis was always looking for these things that were outside of just his learning, that mm -hmm. tied more to feeling and to intuition. And so he got into that actually right before he was saved and surprised by joy. He was getting close to... Um, Satanism. So he was attracted to these weird meta. Um, well, he's reacting against the hard, cold modernism that exactly. led right. to World the War One, yes. World War Two, which makes perfect sense. Why? Why else would you become a medieval mystic? Yeah, right. Which it's that mysticism that's really the the draw. Anything that's mystical that kind of blows up the hard, cold. Yeah, calculated. Yeah, it's what it's what Mark finds in the objective room, which is the normal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, remember that. That's what he's. It's the true, the beautiful, and the good. With the normal as trans. Transcendent. It's yeah. it's what his famous essay is about. What's the name of the essay with the seashore and the we'd rather you know uh, the weight of glory. The weight, the of, weight glory. of glory. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's that's well, that's not actually what the weight of glory is because he goes off in the weird direction at the end about the weight of glory. Disappointing but, direction. Yeah, yeah. But most of the essay is about how we have this feeling, this longing for transcendence, yeah. this aching. Yeah. yeah. There's a funny word that he uses in there There's for transcendence. Weird, no, for that feeling that. Uh, 
that longing yeah. for, well, for the other. He starts talking about fairy tales and yeah, I thought there was some German word. Schadenfreude. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Schadenfreude that we start all saying, feel. Start saying German words. Wittgenstein. <laughs> <laughs> when his enemies, when bad things happen to him, fulfilled so much longing. Bratwurst. He always had a weird word. The Tau. I'm sure we'll talk about the Tau at some mm. point in this conversation. Oh, yeah. right. I Maybe towel. we won't. I don't the know. The throw towel. in the towel. Yeah. <laughs> throw in the towel. Don't throw in the towel, Brandon. <laughs> But the tie-in with modernism is important because that's like Shaw, he was doing the same thing with socialism. And so you also had at the same time guys like the Bertolt Brecht and all these other ones who were doing what Shaw was trying to do with socialist theater. (laughs) And to go back to what you were saying about whether or not he would have had any evangelical friends, he probably Mm -hmm. didn't really have anyone who respected what he was trying to do as an artist and a writer, just like Tolkien. Well, maybe everybody saw. Yeah, except for Tolkien. But, but anybody who was serious, so. yeah. like any modernist who was serious, they wouldn't have no. taken his work seriously. And they would have seen him as a hack. You know, he wasn't doing the hard work of political yeah, he was a theater. He and was a politi- Yeah, he wasn't writing things like T.S. Eliot. He wasn't writing things like Virginia Woolf. Or, and so he was at a weird elitist point in literary history where what was considered good literature, and we'll actually be reading it, I think, on the next bookening, an example of what was happening with American literature with As I Lay Dying. Mm-hmm. It's where it becomes so avant-garde that it just loses any connection to reality. Mm -hmm. And so that's the direction literature is headed at the same time he's starting to write this stuff. Which is heavily rooted in just in tradition and yeah, and you see that played out in the in that hideous strength in the you know the progressive element of Edgestow right or Bracton College right the progressives yeah. versus the kind of backwards old school you know the dimples and the right the traditionalists yeah the traditionalists that old guy that gets up in the meeting and is immediately just shut down yeah, yeah, brutally yeah, yeah. by yeah. I felt really bad for that guy well yeah as well yeah. you should <clears throat> yeah. yeah. Well, uh, I guess we should move on in our discussion unless anybody else has any more context they want to offer to C.S. Lewis. Anybody? Anybody? I expected uh, you to bring up Abolition of Man in the con- yeah, context yeah, yeah. of uh, you know, hold that you thought. We'll, t- we'll talk about Abolition of Man a little bit later in this right. discussion, I think. I, I do want to tie it in and talk when we talk about nice and all that stuff. Because yeah. this book is basically, spoiler alert, this book is Abolition of Man. Dramatized. Dramatized, the fiction version. Um, oh, I did want to ask if anybody, everybody says that this book is heavily influenced by a man who's not in vogue and nobody really knows much about anymore named Charles Williams. Do oh, yeah. you know anything about Charles Williams? I do not. He was a, I don't know a lot about him, so I'm not going to try and talk too much about him, but Tolkien said that Charles Williams ruined this book. Tolkien mostly was pretty Hmm. kind of a Debbie Downer about Lewis's fiction. He wasn't a big allegory fan, didn't really like Narnia, but Tolkien, I believe, if I'm remembering rightly, did actually like Out of the Silent Planet and Paralandra, but then did not like that hideous strength, even though it's Hmm. got like shout outs to him in there. He didn't like it. Ransom Ransom is Tolkien, right? right? Like yeah. Yeah. Ransom's whole character is based on Tolkien. Isn't yeah. that a yeah, true story? Not sure. I haven't, be. It's been a long time since I think when I was a kid, I read one of those dopey kids biographies of uh, C.S. Lewis because we venerated them in my household. Um, oh. Oh. He was our patron saint. <laughs> We'd light a little candle to Did him. You have a, yeah, an icon. Uh, an icon, yeah. <laughs> Apparently, Tolkien said Charles Williams ruined this book. And, told, and I, I don't know a lot about Charles Williams. I didn't have time to research him for this. But he was a weird guy. He wrote these weird books that are kind of a lot like Hideous Strength. Maybe you can talk about him a little hey, bit, Brandon. Do you, you might know more than I do. I've read a few of his novels. Okay, well, but, you know a lot more than I do. What's um, a Charles <laughs> Williams novel like? It's... It's bizarre. And so he has one called, for example, All Hallows' Eve, which is just, it's a story about demonic forces coming at war in the modern world. And so you have a lot of weird descriptions. Sounds familiar. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's um, a lot of strange, difficult to understand passages about the interrelationship between the spiritual world and the physical world. He's kind of a mystic, right? He was kind of a mystic. A little Catholic mixed in. Yeah. Very bizarre. But a lot of Satanism and violence. Exactly. The reason I know him is because I'm a fan of weird fiction, and he's still kind of in vogue among uh, people that like the more avant-garde old, uh, avant-garde old is an oxymoron kind of, but... (laughs) Um, Formerly avant-garde. People that like... (laughs) Old avant-garde. Post-avant-garde. 
horror literature, weird fiction, you know, people that read there that have grown bored with Lovecraft and Poe, they're going to and want to explore the outer realms of stuff will still read Charles Williams because his stuff is weird and gross and creepy. Yeah, enough. he was like the avant garde, but the other direction. So not the liberal direction, no. but this weird. So another guy that they knew was Owen Barfield. And he was a lo- he was friends with all of them and an influence. Mm-hmm. And so he and Bar- Barfield and Charles Williams were two heavy influences on Lewis. Right. And Tolkien thought bad influences for what it took. I don't I can't give you that. more context on that. But there's yeah. a fun nugget to look up, listener. I can see that. I think Tolkien was always disappointed. We don't have time to go into an extended discussion of Tolkien's relationship with Lewis. I think he was always disappointed that Lewis didn't become a Catholic. And, Practically. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, well, I don't know. Talk to Tolkien. I'm, I'm, well... Um, and he was, and he couldn't really get on board with a lot of Lewis's work, uh, fiction work at least. He did, he wasn't a big Narnia fan. He hated allegory. Um, so yeah. they kind of had, I don't know if they had a falling out, but whatever. Look it up, listener. I'm not not here to tell you things about books. Um, <laughs> what's that sound? Oh my goodness! It's the airplane going over. Indicating baggage check. Oh. We are going to talk about what baggage we brought to this book. Brandon, what baggage did you bring to this reading of this book or the original reading of the book or, you know, the original reading of the book. Oh man. I think I gave my whole spiel about C.S. Lewis when we did our books that influenced us when we were young. Hmm. So I came upon Lewis around the same time that I came upon probably Dickens and Yates and those guys. Was your first experience Narnia or something else? My mom probably read Narnia to us when we were young. But when you discovered Lewis for yourself, it wasn't Narnia. Yeah. I, I, the first Lewis I read was Screw Tape Letters. And then I had a really good friend in high school or in junior high at church, and we both really liked literature, and we liked to talk about literature together. And so he really liked G.K. Chesterton. So I got into G.K. Chesterton and all of G.K. Actually, the first, I, I never read G.K. Chesterton's um, like essays. I read his novels. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. The Napoleon of Notting Hill... I yeah. hate G.K. Chesterton novels. You hate G.K. Chesterton novels, yeah. Well, they, I've only read one. The they're weird. The Man Who Was Thursday. Oh, talking man. about avant-garde The first weird. two-thirds of that book yeah. are bizarre. so good, and then it gets and all then religious gets and weird. And then his and, head yeah. gets really big, and yeah. it's strange. Strange stuff. He starts bouncing. Yeah. <laughs> it was weird. Yeah. But through that, I began to get into Lewis, and so I read The Great Divorce and um, Till We Have Faces. Till We yeah. Have Faces is a fantastic book yeah. and really weird. And also, yeah, The Great Divorce, more like The Mediocre Divorce. Oh, I'm just yeah. going to give reviews of each of these books as you mentioned. <laughs> as I started to get in trying to understand why I was liking what I read, you know, Lewis could scratch a place it itched. So Surprised by Joy was really uh, influential for me. Then this book, An Experiment in Criticism, largely because he makes the claim in the book, which is just so strange now, but he makes the claim that there are two types of people, those who have good taste and those who have bad taste. Well, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, that's it just not seems true. so cool when you're that age and you're trying to figure out why, you know, why, why do I like what I like? Right. Why do I seem so much <laughs> yeah. more awesome than Because I have else? good taste. It's like, oh, because I have good taste. Oh. <laughs> well, thank you, Lewis. Oh, I have this thing inside of me where I can understand poetry. Right. <laughs> oh, Other great, people Lewis. don't have it. <laughs> and it's what a lonely bachelor who never had kids or a wife would probably come to think of himself. I'm yeah, a lonely a bachelor so. and I still think that sounds like BS. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Present company accepted, of course. Right. But around the same time, I read the um, Space Trilogy and my favorite was always Paralandra. Really? Until I got married. That was always my least favorite. Had kids. And that's now my favorite is by far the hideous strength. Yeah. So, yeah. That's my background in content. Take. All right, Jake, tell your background. And you might as well throw yourself under the bus before I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I uh, shout out to Mrs. Woodall, my third grade teacher, who introduced me to C.S. Lewis in the, at uh, Hebron Elementary School in Evansville, Indiana. She oh. read uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe out loud, and I really loved it. I guess we did all talk about Lewis at one point or another on yeah. favorite childhood books or something or something like that. But I begged when I found out it was part of a series, I begged my parents to get me the rest of it. And I, I read the, the whole series around then third, third grade ish or so. So that was my first and only experience of C.S. Lewis until I became a Christian. So you'd have been in your 20s or... Yeah, yeah. before I came back to... The next time I hit C.S. Lewis would have been through via John Piper. So I would have been about 18 or 19. Would have been 18, actually. And it would have been uh, Piper introducing me to some of the more famous quotes from The Weight of Glory or Out Reflections like on Desiring the Song. God. Yeah, yeah. L- literally just quotes, yeah, extended quotes the, from Desiring the God. Me- the extended metaphor from Weight of Glory is a big part of... A big part of Desiring the... God. 
foundation yeah. laid in Desiring God, along with some quotes from Reflections on the Psalms. Mm-hmm. And I didn't uh, find the Ransom Trilogy, the ransom mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. I will now call it, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. strive to call it, yeah. until, well, until, until Stephen... Baker introduced me to it. Uh-huh. So, uh-huh. Well, there you go. Shout out and to Mrs. Woodall and Stephen Baker. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. I want to say that the first time I read this base trilogy, oops, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was going to be the only pure one among us. No, but, uh, no. I still have a chance to be the pure one. <laughs> I, I think the first time I read the Ransom trilogy, I might have read it out loud to Amanda. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. My wife, yeah. Just providing context for people that don't know. Some that. random. Yeah, some random. Some chick. Like, well, not who's Amanda? Like, they might think it was my daughter or something like yeah, that. Yeah, like um, so, yeah. so out, out of the Silent Planet was um, was okay. It was interesting in its in its way, but I, I don't think I'd ever go back and reread it. I loved hmm. Paralandra. Those of you who've listened to the book ending know that this isn't saying much, but I cried reading Paralandra. And then, uh, <laughs> are you gonna cry now? <laughs> no, no, okay. no. I'm, I'm holding something over to, Jake's head right pull. now, re- uh, listener. Which is, that, <laughs> well, I'll, I, I'll okay. tell you. But once upon a time, a long, long time ago, I had this. I don't know if you guys are aware of these things called what was Google's blog thing called? A blogger. I had a blogger, blogger account. account. Yeah, I had a blogger account back in the day. And I, uh, first time I read the Ransom trilogy, mm. I reviewed the books and I said something like, uh, Paraland was out of this world and that hideous strength was out of this galaxy. And wow. you said, and I quote, <laughs> <laughs> Nathan, Nathan was like, <laughs> He was doxing me <laughs> like five years ago and reading all of my old blog posts from, you know, when I was 20. Yeah. And so he's, and he's memorized the whole sections of it. Wow. Well, this is the greatest <laughs> test section. And one of the great things that was said by uh, you on that blogger account, I think, and one of the great things perhaps said by humanity and history, which is if you liked Paralandra, that hideous strength is out of this galaxy. <laughs> yeah, so oh, there man. You go. I've been dining out on that one for so many years now. <laughs> he's, it's like <laughs> the first thing reader beware if you're ever going to be make friends with nathan alberson the first thing you need to do is scrub your past because he's going to find something <laughs> to hold over your head for your entire friendship something embarrassing i'm a creepy old man he, that goes online he actually <laughs> then went and he scrubbed his own youtube videos <laughs> So that I couldn't do the same thing. To I had him. to. I knew revenge was coming. <laughs> I knew I'd wounded you mortally by finding that, <laughs> sending you about four thousand LOLs in aloud. <laughs> yeah. uh, that was probably the best text I've ever sent. It just said like LOL, 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 and then Jake was like, "What's so funny?" And then I was like. If you like Paralandra, quote, <laughs> and then I that hideous strength is out of this galaxy, <laughs> <laughs> and and it probably wasn't five minutes before that old blog was removed from the internet. Yeah, so. you cannot find it now. <laughs> uh, you cannot find it on. Oh, um, that's too bad. There may, there might be ways if you if, if if there's a listener out there I'm that sure has, the NSA I'm has sure the money or the somebody resources can to find track it on down. find it archived somewhere or something. like If that. you want to give a gift to me, <laughs> listener, don't give us a good review on iTunes. Don't send money to Warhorn. Just track down that quote. Give me a good screenshot of it, <laughs> and uh, we'll see that it's disseminated to the public. Stephen, your thoughts on? Oh, did you have more context? No, obviously not. No, oh, no, go ahead. <laughs> we got to the important part. <laughs> what else is the there to say? The only thing that was worth saying. <laughs> the only reason we're reading this book is so I can get you to tell that story. <laughs> I think I've read maybe the whole Ransom trilogy one one other time. Have you read his nonfiction? Obviously, you've, I've read Reflections on the it. Psalms. I've read The Abolition of Man, The Weight of Glory. I think, or you read it with us in class that one time. Oh yeah. So yeah, I've read The Weight of Glory. So I feel so unappreciated. Do you have more to say? <laughs> No. Okay. We can say more. We can wait. No, I've got nothing else to say, apparently. I'm, I'm happy to listen, Jake. All I care about is your relationship with C.S. Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> the only baggage I brought to this reading was, will I like it as much as I did the first time? First time I read it, mm. I was probably in the first two years of marriage. So and, it had uh, some additional meaning. Yeah, it's, you know... Um, like, I've stomped the rose butch to pluck the rose. Yeah, absolutely, yes. I like man. to watch hedgehogs have sex. <laughs> I, don't th- I don't think I had that okay. particular thought. <laughs> I understand the eroticism of obedience. <laughs> but that, yeah, yeah. sure. 
It's a lot to navigate in those first couple of years and figure out. I don't like to listen to my wife talk. <laughs> well, yeah. And we no, can't do the dishes together for crying out loud. I do the dishes one night and then she does them the other night for some weird reason. Well, <laughs> just to stop you. Yes, <laughs> Getting back to what Thank you. Stephen was saying about him being really good with psychological interior yes. and to get what tie that to what you're saying. I do think that he's like, I guess a little bit like Anna Karenina and that you get more, it's different each time you come back to mm-hmm. this. So when I was young and read it, I didn't get as much out of it. One or two years into my marriage, read it, didn't got a completely different thing out of it. Mm-hmm. Now I'm actually probably fairly close to Mark's age. Yeah. Can sympathize more with him, get different things out of it. And so it's, yeah, it's yeah. Did you find on this reading that it still held up the way that it had in the past? Parts of it did, yeah. Did it hold up the way Anna Karenina held up? No. Yeah, but I mean. Not a lot of Tolstoy's in the world. I'd be saying something. Yeah, Yeah, sure would. All right. May I ask Stephen about his baggage, Jake? I give you permission to ask Stephen about his baggage. Uh, yes. Explain this baggage. Well, uh, what what sort of baggage did you bring to Stephen to... (laughs) I can't explain it. When you first read C.S. when Lewis, I first read what it, was your experience of him? Have you always liked him? Well, Did so you? no. I say I didn't grow up reading the Narnia books. I don't know if I've ever read them all. I don't think I have. If I would have, it would have been as an adult. And I, I know I've listened to them. There's a real excellent kind of a dramatized recording version that like Focus on the Family put out years ago. Really excellent. I've listened to John Cleese's Screwtape Letters. John Cleese's Screwtape Letters Fant- is amazing. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah, absolutely yeah. amazing. I didn't know he'd done John Cleese did oh Screwtape Letters. And it's day. it's, yeah. it's yeah. absolutely brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> it I is bet. brilliant. I bet. Uh, so I didn't read much Tolkien. I think the first thing I ever tried to read was Mere Christianity. And my, I think my mother got that for me when I was kind of like a, a foundering teenager. Flat Floundering teenager, druggy type weirdo, and it was supposed to help me, and of course it didn't. So I never was really turned on by Lewis much at all until I until I read the Ransom trilogy. There until you go. read the Ransom yeah. trilogy, and I have no idea where I found it. And I probably read it uh, the first time when I was relatively newly married, fairly early on. Then I read it aloud to to my wife, just like you did. But I have read it, I think, probably five five or six times. So you really love this book? Well, probably, especially this last book. Especially this last yep. book. Yep. I guess we'll hear more about why as we go, but... Um, mm-hmm. I will say, just to make sure that I get as much time on the mic as possible yeah, here, that, <laughs> <laughs> that I really have avoided reading Lewis. And every time yeah. I've read Lewis, I've, I've enjoyed and benefited from reading Lewis, but I am so wary and so you, sick of the obsession. Is it safe to say of, that you brought the baggage of this guy is really popular among a bunch of people that are dumb? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Not a nicer yeah. way to put I, that. I, I think I, have, I feel he, the same way. I, he's really popular among a, among a bunch of people who are With dumb. With no discernment. And a bunch of people out there are trying to ape him everywhere. And it yeah. just makes me sick. It's like everybody wants to be the new C.S. Lewis, and they want to be the new C.S. Lewis by having Lewis's shtick. And it doesn't work. They're miserable failures at it. You you go back and you actually read Lewis and you know why people want to try to be like him, but just the same. It's just uh, it's yeah. like aping G.K. Chesterton. Exactly. Ooh, that's even worse. Yeah. Yeah. You shouldn't do that. Listener, don't ape either one of those people. Be your own. And also don't, Woodhouse. Yeah, don't, don't <laughs> ape Woodhouse. Don't ape any of those guys. You're, anyway. Read them and enjoy them and steal where nobody's looking. If steal where nobody's steal. looking. Best advice you can ever hear. Um, <laughs> it's not that, that applies to writing. Not like if you're a, if you're a thief. <laughs> not, not to the silver. <laughs> Target. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, nobody's looking here. If you're listening to this in Walmart right now. Go somewhere Stop else. Stop it. Yeah, don't don't steal. That's not what I meant. Um, my baggage is my mom read us Narnia growing up multiple times. She really loved Narnia. And I sort of despised it for that reason because it was just like that thing that your mom wants to force on you and she's your mom so obviously it must be lame but then i sort of secretly like i would complain and be a horrible son and then she would start reading it and i would like it you know it was one of those one of those things like that kid in the princess bride that there was um, some baggage yeah exactly that's yeah see that's what baggage is mm-hmm. um so I always have sort of had a love-hate relationship with Narnia. I actually like it quite a bit now that I realize, now that I know myself better. But man, I, I, I always thought that I didn't like it because I was a cynical hipster poser type person. What else? What else happened after that? 
Oh, and then, and then I actually sort of discovered Lewis as a teenager, really enjoyed Mere Christianity, learned a lot from that. I, that book has some terrible stuff, but I still think it has some really helpful stuff, especially when he's talking about practical matters. Lewis mm-hmm. is always good with human psychology, with the human side of things. When he gets mm-hmm. into the divine and the theological, you know, right. uh, I would say if, if you want my ranking, the worst Lewis book out there is his one on the Psalms. It's got mm-hmm. some good stuff too, but the stuff that's bad is so bad, like Stephen was it's saying. Awful. It's yeah, awful. It is awful. It's awful. It's just wicked. Yeah, it really is. My Some of the best Lewis stuff, if you're into, if you're listening to this podcast because you like literature, I would entirely encourage you, and maybe we have before, to get his book on Paradise Lost. It's about 120 pages. It's I'd say probably the best thing. No, it's not the best thing that he wrote. The best thing that he wrote is The Abolition of Man. I think that's a wonderful essay. I've read it many times. And I read it for all kinds of things. I think it makes a great point, many of the same great points that he makes in that hideous strength. It's also just, we just made fun of people for ripping off Lewis. I don't want to rip off Lewis, but if you just want a straight shot of good style in essay writing, that's just a fantastic, it's just like reading a great essay by White, E.B. White or one of those guys. Mm-hmm. The way that he builds his argument and takes you from talking about this little school book that he didn't mm-hmm. like very much, and then from by the end of the essay, he's built it into this apocalyptic doom for the human race if we don't change. It, it's really just masterful. It's good writing. It's good writing. Yes. And, and that's what Lewis was, and that's a large part of the way that that I've enjoyed him is just as a good writer and I try not to steal from him because I do do get annoyed when I see too much Lewis or Chesterton creeping into a modern Christian author's work but I just think you can't do any better I mean just like he was a he was a really good writer just a great stylist and really warm and approachable even his more academic stuff like the Paradise Lost essay which is pretty packs a lot in but um, it's fantastic but it's fantastic and it's it's is approachable insofar as you're interested in epic poetry. Yeah, he's actually still read among medieval scholars. His books, like the one you mentioned. The Discarded Image. The Discarded Image. He has books on medieval literature that are still, the allegory of love is still appreciated. So when he wrote about literature, he was really strong. Right. Right. Hangs beautiful style on a really solid structure whenever yeah. he writes. And what annoys me about anybody that apes him is they, they copy little they flourishes the bubbles, of style. The flourishes. Yeah. And they the they substance. put it they they take the, the proverbial ring and try to put it on the snout of their garbage. Lewis had the benefit of actually a good solid British boy school training. And he could think and he had the story in Surprised yeah. by Joy of the tutor or whatever, the guy yeah. that where Lewis said, eh, it was a nice train ride. And the guy was like, why was it a great train ride? I don't remember what the thing was, actually. But he was like, let me question you about that. And just started like drilling yeah. into his head like how to actually think about things. So he was sturdy. He could think. And you, like you said, there's good bones to all of his essays. Mm-hmm. And anyone who wants to learn how to write and make a good argument that's just blows you away when you look just from sentence to sentence just how he transitions from one thought to another and how he interweaves <laughs> image and uh, he's really fantastic and is a good tutor when it goes to that yeah and then you have i mean like the he who will not be named i guess um <laughs> <laughs> lightheart yes lightheart <laughs> lord Voldemort. Yeah. <laughs> i mean he has the disease of a lot of modern academics where he's not really been taught to so think flabby. overly well. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just... Or at least not as sturdily as Lewis, and it comes through. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I, I read Lewis... Good observations. And, to this day, yeah. I read Lewis mostly, I will say, for just pure literary enjoyment. And that goes for his essays, that goes for his books. I really like the way the man writes. And I like that whole school of, not not so much the British school, but everyone that was writing at that time... <laughs> <clears throat> or not everyone. I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say. I like those clean, concise. Those are my favorite writers. Are yeah. uh, E. B. White. You still get those today. Like I think what's his name, James Wood, who wrote How Fiction Works mm-hmm. and stuff. Yeah, you get those. They're just they're not trying to ape C.S. Lewis. They're just trying to write good stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So, um, so I, I actually like a lot of his nonfiction stuff. And then Screw Tape Letters, obviously, is fantastic. I haven't actually ever gone back and read the Narnia books since my days of hating them for dumb reasons. I assume I'd probably Mm. like them. I'm just going to admit I have tried to read both Out of the Silent Planet and Paralandra, and I could not get through them. But I've uh, I've seen paint dry, so I guess I've had pretty much the same experience. Right? Zing! I don't like books about the flora and fauna of other worlds. Boring! Um, I don't don't remember why. Oh, sorry. Ransom Trilogy. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I I admit that they're great. Clean. I know a lot of people like them. They're just not 
is it okay that they're not for me? I don't know. I'll probably try them again someday. I have really tried with both those books multiple times. And people said, if you don't like Out of the Silent Planet, then you've got to do Paralandra at least. And as I tried Paralandra, I couldn't get through that. I definitely like That Hideous Strength the best. Yeah, That Hideous Strength yeah. is just a fantastic book. It doesn't feel like the other ones. There's not a lot of boring, you know. But I, the, my impression, and I'm sure this is wrong and condescending and lame, but my, my impression of those books is Ransom stepped out of the spaceship. There were hills, but they were not green hills. They were purple hills. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> I'm going to go on for five pages about that. And broccoli. <laughs> trees. Giant trees that look like broccoli. And I just, I'm like, I have movies, dude. I have TV shows. I don't need to be reading. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> You're wrong. Booking was written and produced by me, Nathan Alberson. Brandon Chastine performed it. Jake Mentzel performed it. Stephen Baker performed it. And I, Nathan Alberson, performed it. And so thank you for listening tonight, folks. Uh, you can go to the, the Warhorn Media. You can look us up on the socials under Warhorn Media. At Warhorn Media is how we are on all the socials, except for arguably the socials that we're not on. Clear Note Pastors College is the pastor college that is deemed by Stephen Baker. If you want to be a pastor, not deemed, yes, deemed? Oh, deemed. Oh, deemed. Oh, deemed. Totally deemed. Indeed. I'm totally deemed that thing. Indeed. Indeed. I think it's a good college. It's produced some wonderful pastors, including some that may even be in this room. What? Some that are the masters of reading. Some that are the masters of reading, even. Quite the title. Quite the title. Yep. It's not my diploma. That's not your diploma. So you can't actually go to this. He's got a master's of reading. Or a master's of reading. (laughs) (laughs) You graduated with a degree in reading. Um, (laughs) Pretty sure you do that in kindergarten. Uh, Thank you for listening, folks. Good night.